WFNU is a volunteer-run station made up of many different community voices. Each program expresses one aspect of this diversity and not the view of WFNU or FTI as a whole. This is the ADAPT revolution. Say it with me, Beth. What? Say it with me. This, this is the ADAPT, ADAPT revolution. revolution. We want to um, first and foremost acknowledge that we are on the ancestral lands of the Anishinaabe and Dakota people in what is also known as Minnesota, and uh, affectionately known to us as the Twin Cities in large part uh, for the roots of this show um, at this moment in time. So welcome all to the ADAPT revolution. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the seventh episode of Adapt Revolution. In the seventh episode, we focus on victory, and we interview autistic author, poet, photographer, and professor Saeed Shaia on what it means to focus on ourselves and center our own wholeness as we work to thrive in community as well as achieving our own dreams. And then, We'll have a piece from Haben Gurma, the deafblind lawyer who graduated from Harvard Law School. And we'll talk about the fight for students with disabilities and getting them the civil rights that they so deserve. everyone and welcome to the seventh episode of Adapt Revolution, your weekly antidote to hate, greed, and ableism, where the D word is disability. For our seventh episode, we are focusing on victory. What are the disabled victories that we claim on a daily basis? How do we build the world that we want? How do we see ourselves through every situation and see each other into more care, more tenderness, and more abundance every day. Here with us today is Saeed Shaia, and I'm going to let him introduce himself, and uh, we'll get started with the episode. So. Hey, thank you so much for having me, Matt. I appreciate it. Uh, my name is Saeed Shaia, Saeed Shaia. Um, I am an autistic and ADHD uh, author, professor, disability advocate, um, photographer as well. Um, I, uh, I'm the author of Are You Bored Now, um, which was a Minnesota Book Award finalist in 2022. Um, it is an experimental memoir that uses self-interview um, between myself and my inner child 
to explore the various traumas and experiences of my life. Um, it retraces me and my family's journey from um, Somalia, where I was born um, shortly before the Civil War. Um, when I was three years old, we moved to Kenya, um, and I grew up in the refugee camps for about four years, in Otanga refugee camp and a few other ones. Um, that's where both my younger brothers were born. After those four years, we moved to America in 1997 when I was seven years old. Uh, settled in Atlanta, lived there for a few years, and then moved to Seattle where I grew up, and that's the closest thing that I have to a home. Um, yeah, uh, disability advocacy is, is super important to me. Um, it's a big part of my life. I have only recently discovered of my own disabilities. I was diagnosed um, with autism and ADHD um, about two years ago. Um, before that, I knew I had complex PTSD from, you know, if you're <laughs> born in a civil war, there's going to be some trauma. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, ever since then, you know, it's just been super important to me first to understand what that means for me in my life and reframe the experiences that I've had. Um, and then also looking at it from a communal perspective, realizing that there are a lot of people that, that um, are unaware of their disabilities um, and their challenges and the ways that they could be living healthier lives for themselves. Um, and so I use as one of the vehicles to do that. Um, uh, advocacy in direct ways, um, um, telling someone that I suspect they're autistic is probably the most advocacy type of thing that I do, and I do it all the time. And that's how I found out about my um, being autistic, was someone telling me, hey, you're autistic. I didn't know what to make of it at first, but it turned out to be one of the best yeah. and most important discoveries of my life. I'm very grateful for it, and I see it as a gift, so I'm very much encouraged to Pass that along, you know, pass that gets along to others as well. Nice. Okay. I identify as uh, neurodivergent as well. Um, I uh, haven't um, kind of done anything official around autism or anything, but um, I see my neurodivergence as a gift as well. So um, welcome to the show. It's great to have you. Um, and um, I guess to get started, um, what is um, your what, what is your dream? What is your vision? Um, you were talking earlier about world building, but um, how do we build the world that we want? And what are your dreams um, for the Adapt Revolution? Wow, way to start off with a with a with a with the easy pitch. That was. That's a big question. Um, uh, I love it though. I love those kinds of questions. I think, you know, um, my dream ideally uh, is to live in a world that didn't require me to change so much of myself just to survive it, um, to make so many self accommodations constantly, to have to walk out of rooms because they're too loud and they're too bright. Even with my Glasses on and my uh, earpods ear on, still overstimulated, and yeah, being so overstimulated that I don't have conversation. I don't have words to tell people that it's and feeling like an inconvenience for asking someone to turn off the fluorescent lights or close the blinds at eight a.m. because it's too bright, um, and just finding it easier to to walk out of the room. You know, it's always been easier for me to walk out of the room and. Now I'm I'm starting to think about what does that do to me as a person on the inside? What how many rooms am I walking out of within myself? And yeah, and and hard. what and what you know it's hard. Kind of rooms do we want to walk into? That's the question too. You know, um, what kind of rooms do we want to walk into? And um, you know, how do we kind of layer ourselves in the richness of what it means to um, understand? sensory abilities in um, a more lush and um, boundless perspective, you know? Um, what kind of rooms do we want to walk into, you know? Um, Absolutely. That's a question, I guess, that uh, comes to mind for me, you know? Absolutely. It's, it's um, we, I, I tend to only go into spaces that I am relatively sure I will have control over. Um, 
and be able to modulate to meet my needs so that I can do what I need to do for as long as I need to do it. Um, this limits my ability to interact with a lot of situations in this world. Um, yeah. As a writer, as, as, as a speaker, as, as a professor, those are challenges um, you know, exacerbated by the ADHD. Um, but the challenges allow me to be creative in ways that I show up for myself um, and allow myself to cherish and protect myself through the simple things that I do, um, whether it's communicating ahead of time in an email, because it'll be easier that way, or it's um, if something is really bothering me, even though I hate speaking up and I hate, like, unless I'm performing poetry, I don't like being the center of attention, you know? Um, I, I've never been comfortable asking for what I need. You know, I grew up in a culture that um, kind of prized being someone who said no, even if something was offered to them that they wanted, because it was the polite thing to do. And so that taught me to say no to everything, including myself. Um, mm -hmm. And it's, it's an important question of what spaces do we want to cultivate? What kinds of relationships do we want to cultivate in our lives that allow us to feel yep. like we can show up as our full selves at all times and not have to have this guard and this mask and this armor on that, that we're using to protect ourselves. It can be training. Yeah. I never answer your question. Yeah, we, my biggest dream? we. Oh yeah, what is your? <laughs> what is your biggest um, dream? Go for it. I think my biggest dream, um, currently, and I continue to refine my dreams as I get closer to them. It's honestly um, to just live a life that's centered around not worrying about money first and foremost, um, having my needs and my, my family's and the people I care about's needs met, um, being able to do the things that I love, um, writing, speaking, talking about writing, talking about trauma and disability, um, traveling to do those things, um, going on wonderful writing retreats like the one I just left, um, which was a black writing intensive focused on healing our trauma through writing. And it was the most beautiful weekend of just allowing ourselves to be ourselves um, and to care for strangers <laughs> and give ourselves a, a reprieve from, from the hardships and the, the challenges of navigating life and as, as, as Black artists in, in the often toxic spaces that we find ourselves in, um, in this country, in this state, all that. So I think my dream is to just be able to live a life that allows me to be my happiest, fullest self so that I can give the most that I can to others because I've always loved helping people. Um, and, you know, if you if you are not at your most resourceful self, if you're not at your best place, um, it's going to be hard to give anything more to the rest of the world because you don't even have enough to give yourself, you know? So uh, that would be one of my dreams. And just to help, honestly, help more people um, you know, um, more Black people discover their innate neurodivergence and learn how to reframe that as a positive and not a deficit, um, and specifically in the Somali community because those are my people, um, and that's the cultural context that I have the strongest um, knowledge of because that's what I grew up in, um, to allow my people to get to a place where we look at disability um, with less stigma and less shame. We look at things like mental health and neurodivergence with any type of divergence with less shame, um, with more accepting, um, with more coming to terms with, um, and I guess allowing, you know what I mean? Using my, my story and my experiences as, as a bridge for other people who may or may not be Somali, who, um, who never suspected that they were neurodivergent or had a um, unknown disability. Um, to go about the process of discovering that and allowing themselves to live, live their fullest lives um, and not feel shame about it. And shame is so, like, that's one thing I always go back to because it's taking me a long time to work on that in all aspects of my life, but especially considering, like, um, just as an example, shaming myself for all the ways that I was not able to be culturally present. Um, to be Somali means to be extroverted and outgoing and 
be at social events and go to weddings and show up for a friend's birthday and have family come over and sit with them talking for hours. I'm not built for that. I've never been built for that. Mm -hmm. And there are so many people that I know that that don't have that capacity because their bodies and minds just don't work that way. And instead of trying to force ourselves to push past every limit that we know we have in the name of not being talked about and ostracized and not standing out in the wrong ways, just accepting ourselves, leaving when we need to, not going in the first place <laughs> if we don't want to, going to our dark yeah. rooms, recover and recharge and not feeling like I'm a broken person because I can't socialize like everyone else. And I'll never be able to work a 40 an hour, 40 hour a week job in an office setting. Um, not because I'm broken, but because brother, I, the, the fluorescent lights, the chit chat, the click clack noises, the, the water cooler talk, the small talk. Yeah. Too much. The pressure Way too much. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, sorry, that was a long-winded response. No, thank you. Yeah, in the in the last episode, we talked about um, the magic of disability, um, and we talked about um, that the magic of disability is really about centering care um, at all times. And we talk about ourselves, um, able media. Um, we talk about ourselves as tending to quality of life issues for people with disabilities. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I believe that um, those of us who do have disabilities should be the ones um, setting the policies and the rules um, yeah. for the ways that um, the systems um, that support our lives are being run, you know, and um, we deserve to have creative control over um over those kinds of things, you know, and um, I think that that's what we're trying to encourage people to to just get get into the the headspace, really um, being able to understand themselves, like you said, as full, complete, whole human beings um, that can um, have these lives that we can have these lives that we dream of, you know, and we just have to tend to ourselves and each other in the process and um, really center care, you know? Um, And so I'm wondering if, um, well, first of all, Beth, if you have any questions for Saeed, um, if you have any questions, go ahead. Yeah, have you ever thought about alternative systems to case managers? Because many times they have let me down as of late mm. and before I used to trust them like when I was a teenager and then you know mm. it began to snowball after I was 18 and you know and I uh, you know wish that there were alternatives and mm. I want to have my own to turn to yeah um... and I think we need to have that much like people of color like having their own to turn to you know as long as they're not like clarence thomas or like you know the uh you know for example yes. <laughs> i'm giving you i love that so much <laughs> thank you oh man so for you the know, cops that's, that's gonna... beat up on fire right 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 and uh, so you know it's it's um you know, because uh, just because we have similarities and we share lived experiences doesn't mean that we have the same kind of hearts um, or views. Um, I think, I, I think, I think that um, that's a very important question. I personally um, no. have never gone through that myself. Um, I haven't had case management. I haven't been able to go through the, uh, the various processes for getting some type of uh, support uh, from the county, from the state. I've tried so many right. times and eventually I just gave up and I talked to friends who work in these spaces and they say that's kind of by design, you know, like, or friends who have, um, who have disabled children, um, um, but they themselves are not disabled and they work in like nonprofit work and social work. So they know how to do these kinds of forms. And they say, we've been going after this for years and they just keep putting more hoops in front of us. And I'm like, okay, so it's not just me not being able to do it. There's a structural thing in place. Um, but to answer your question, um, it, it is lacking in so many ways. My younger sister, um, she has Down syndrome and she has a case manager. Mm-hmm. And I have felt so bad about her situation. 
um, because she has not been getting services at all since she graduated high school. Um, and she graduated high school about, I want to say four or five years ago. Um, she was supposed okay. to go to a vocational <laughs> program after high school and do some type of uh, work training and have some type of employment so that she would have something to do outside of the house and various activities and different stuff like that. Nothing happened, nothing happened. And part of the problem is, you know what I mean, uh, the bureaucracy of it, but I think there's a racial issue too because they live in a small town. Certainly. And I've talked to lots of Somali families in small towns. I used to be a medical instructor, traveled all over the state. And I've seen so much disparity um, between the kinds of services, not that it's perfect here in the Twin Cities, but the kinds of services and the kind of help and support oh, that um, people are able to get here versus out there. And it's just like, they don't care. It's what it looks like in practice, whether they do or they don't, like they're not putting in the effort. And there's so many people, I was just talking to the Somali mother the other day who didn't know that her kids qualified for waivers, that she could be getting help for all of the needs that her children have. And she was like, what is a waiver? I'm like, do you have a case manager? She's like, yeah, but they've never talked to me about that. You know how it is in these small towns. And I said, I know exactly how it is in those small towns. So it is, it's, it's, it's definitely, um, it's a system um, just like many of the systems in this country that is inadequate, ineffective, um, at worst harmful, at best uh, negligent. And it's just, yeah. it does not serve the people that it's designed to serve. Um, but I'm not surprised by that in a country that just once again voted in so many ways to not allow student loans to be um, forgiven. And yet uh, um, it, without even thinking about it, passing hundreds of millions and billions of dollars in new defense funding and new arms contracts for yeah. random places selling, you know what I mean? Uh, donating I do. arms here, selling arms there. And I'm like, what are we really doing yeah. here? You know what I mean? It's not a lack of money. Yeah. It's a lack of, yeah. of care, a priority. Yeah. You know? yep, yep, yep. It's, it's definitely messed up. Just like it is almost impossible for someone with diagnosed disabilities to qualify for the service that they are legally entitled to um, because of the hoops that they have to jump through. Um, similarly, it is difficult for once they do get in that door and do get the case uh, manager type services, um, it's it's like on paper, it looks good, but the reality and the practice of it, as I've seen in, in various settings, yeah, it needs a lot of help. And I wish there were better alternatives because it's like how black people, people of color, are the best people to understand each other's needs because they have the same experience, unless they're sitting, a particular person who's sitting on the Supreme Court bench. Um, mm -hmm. In the same way, disabled people are gonna have the best experiences to be able to understand what we need. Even if we have different disabilities, we'll be able to empathize based on our own disability experience and listen and give the person what they're asking. It shouldn't be so hard, and yet. No, not rocket science. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, you know, the, um, the, the panel discussion um, on the 7th um, at the Wilder Center is being presented by LifeWorks, um, which is an organization that, nonprofit organization that, um, that helps disabled people um, live their best lives in whatever way um, is feels best for them, whatever areas that they need support with. It's an organization that helps disabled people um, um, and is dedicated to helping them um, help themselves and be advocates nice. for themselves um, from nice. a systemic perspective. Uh, and so the, the panel discussion itself in question is about um, DEI work, uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion, uh, but including disability in that, in that conversation, um, neurodivergence. Yeah. Um, in that conversation and different types of disabilities, whether they be physical, um, mental, or otherwise. Um, and just looking at broadening the conversation about what inclusion means um, in today's world, with as much technology as we have and as many experiences as we've gained from the pandemic um, that showed us that we can pivot our lives very quickly from you have to be there to do the work to, okay, we can make it work online. Um, and all these assistive yep. technologies that exist out there, the automatic captioning technology that exists, um, why are we leaving all of that progress behind and saying, well, pandemic is over, pandemic is over, I guess. Huh? Um, let's go back to the old way immediately and forget about what happened the last few years. That was, that was, that was an aberration. It was just a blip on the radar. And I'm yeah. like, 
look, man, we um we we live in a world that is very difficult um for everyone, but very much more difficult for some people than others. And I think that it's upon us, all of us, not just the people who are affected by the inequalities that exist in accessibility needs, um, accessibility um, to physical spaces, um, to processes, whether it's job searching, job applying, or it's it's um, engaging with social services, trying to get help. Um, we, we all need to be better, especially the people who are in positions to make change um, about making this world a more just and equitable place for everybody, period. Well, yeah. Like full yeah. stop without qualification, um, reinforcing this idea that everyone is worthy of being loved without having to be anything, without having to do anything, that everyone is a worthy human being just as they are. Um, and that we are all unique unique beings in the history of humanity, there will be never, ever, ever be another person who is exactly like you, ever. There hasn't been one and there never will be one. In all of the years that we've been alive as a species and all the people that have been born and passed on, there will never be another you. So regardless of your ability to produce capital for this system, your ability to work an office job, your ability to go be lucrative and start a business, real estate, where I'm going to seminar, regardless of any of that stuff. You know what I mean? Whether you're struggling with addiction and homelessness and are just fighting to make a way for yourself or you're, you're struggling to keep the boat afloat because you're the only one in your family who is able to do some things and everyone else is depending on you. Um, we are all worthy just as we are. And I think that's what really that inclusion thing um, means for me is, is that we're not, I shouldn't have to ask for my humanity to be recognized. It's, it's inherently dehumanizing to be put in that position, to speak up for myself. They say a closed mouth don't get fed, but you should recognize that I'm a human and I need to eat. So why are you not giving me food without me having to yeah. ask for it first? You know what I mean? Um, yeah. It's, it is um it is a strange world we live in. Um, I'm grateful for the people that have helped me along the way, um, that have been kind to me, um, and that have shown me all the ways that I need to be kind to myself. Um, and I think it's exceedingly important for us, all of us, regardless of our situation or background. To, to be more open and honest with ourselves, um, to be better human beings um, so that we can open our hearts and allow the experiences and the pain of other people to walk into those hearts um, and to be moved by that and to be driven to action um, and to help make this world a better place. Even if it's just driving around, if you drive, driving with a, a case of water bottles in there, even though plastic bottled water is bad for the environment, knowing that on hot days like this, there will be houses of people, unhoused people that are standing on the corner. And if you don't happen to have cash, pulling up on a 90 degree human day and giving them a bottle of water, that's making the world a better place. That's making that person's life a better life. Even if it's in just that brief interaction and with what little ability you had to affect their life. Just taking yeah. small gestures um, to recognize each other's humanity, you know? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, thank you for that. Thanks. All right. Well, thank you again for um, for giving us the interview today. And um, we're looking forward to seeing many of you on uh, Wednesday, on uh, June 7th at the event at the Wilder Foundation. And that's from it's early, 30 right? a.m. to yep. 9 30 a.m. Yeah. Yep. Um, put on by LifeWorks. Mm -hmm. And um, yep. All right, Saeed. Thank you so much. Yeah. And um, really great to meet you. Um, Likewise. Thank you for having me and for giving me this opportunity. I really appreciate it. All right. Yeah. Good to right. meet you too. Take care. You too. Bye. All right. <laughs> Bye now. Bye. Oh, that's great.
Thanks again to Saeed Shaia for the interview. You can catch Saeed in person at the Wilder Foundation this coming Wednesday, June 7th from 7.30 a.m. to 9.30 a.m. Food will be served. Up next, we've got Haben Gurma and her TED Talk about fighting for the rights of children with disabilities. as a Skadden Fellow at Disability Rights Advocates. In other words, I'm a lawyer. <laughs> What's a lawyer? Well, there are many stereotypes, negative stereotypes of lawyers. People who never give you a straight answer. People who just want your money. People who aren't even people. They're sharks. These images are so strongly embedded in our culture that people tell me, half-joking, I don't like lawyers. But when people think of lawyers, they really think of just one type of lawyer. Think about it. Imagine, when you envision a lawyer, what do you see? Do you see a woman? Is that the first thing that comes to mind? How about someone using a wheelchair? Do you see someone who's deaf and signing? Or even, do you see someone who's nice? There are many types of lawyers, and public service lawyers are changing what it means to be a lawyer. These are people who work and advocate for communities they love. For some of these lawyers, Personal experiences fuel the desire to put an end to widespread injustice. People who experience challenges sometimes develop strengths that make them great advocates. Lawyers take experiences of poverty, race, gender, disability, or other forms of discrimination and use that knowledge as a ladder for legal advocacy. For me, a lifetime of needing to advocate for myself prepared me for the field of law. My disability is deafblindness. Helen Keller paved a path of possibilities for deafblind children and adults who came after her. These individuals need to move forward as pioneers in a world designed for people who can see and hear. Many members of minority groups move forward as pioneers. The process of pioneering one's way through obstacles builds strong self-advocacy skills that can be used in the field of law or other forms of advocacy. As a pioneer, I went to the perfect college, Lewis and Clark. They called their football team the Pioneers. Their favorite place to hang out in downtown Portland? Pioneer Square. What else? Oh, and they called their school bus the Pioneer Express. As a pioneer, I lived for two years in the dorms at Lewis and Clark, and I ate at the cafeteria. The cafeteria had about five different food stations. And there was a menu at the door, and people would read the menu and choose what they wanted to eat. Blind students like myself couldn't read the menu. 
The staff at the cafeteria offered to read me the menu, but I couldn't hear it. As a blind student, my first choice would be to read the menu in Braille. Braille takes time to produce, so we compromised. The staff agreed to email me the menu at the start of each meal, and I would be able to read it on my computer using a screen reader. It was a great idea, but the cafeteria constantly forgot to email the menus. Since I couldn't read the menu, and I couldn't hear the staff in the cafeteria, I couldn't choose what I was going to eat. So after classes, I would pick a station at random. I would go up and take whatever was that was served by the staff behind the counter. I would take it to the table, and only then would I realize what I was going to eat. There were some unhappy surprises. <laughs> As a busy student with classes and preparing for exams and writing papers, the last thing I needed was this added frustration. But sometimes they did remember to send the menus, and when they did. I was thrilled to have choices. For example, if the menu said Station Three, tortellini with smoked gouda cheese, I would know to skip stations one and two and go straight to Station Three. When they remembered to send the menus, life was delicious. But they regularly forgot to send the menus. For the first few months. I didn't do anything about it. I live and operate in a world that's designed for people who can see and hear, and I figured this would just be another thing I would have to deal with, like not being able to drive or not being able to watch the latest Grammys, or people not knowing how to communicate with someone who's deafblind. One of my best friends. When she first met me, didn't know how to talk to someone who's deafblind. In our international law class at Harvard, she was assigned to sit next to me, and we all had assigned seating. And she thought she could wave, but what if I didn't see it? And if she speaks, would I be able to hear it? So she did the most logical thing for a student to do. She went on to Facebook and sent me a message saying, "Hi, Hobbin, I'm sitting right next to you." <laughs> <laughs> I'm happy to teach people how to communicate. I love those who embrace diversity, and there's all kinds of diversity. Occasionally, there are individuals or organizations who are not willing to make accommodations for people with disabilities, and there's that decision: do you just deal and let it go, or do you do something about it? And those menus at that cafeteria was a pivotal moment for me when I decided that I should do something for myself. And for future blind students who came to that college, or anyone else who needed menus in alternative formats, so I explained to the manager at the cafeteria that I paid to eat at the cafeteria, and like all the other students, I deserved access to the menus so I could take advantage of these services. The manager told me they're very busy. He's doing me a big favor. And I needed to stop complaining and be more appreciative. I don't know about you, but if there's chocolate cake at Station Four and no one tells me, <laughs> I'm not feeling appreciative. <laughs> so after several incidents of missed chocolate cake, I had enough. I tried something new. The Americans with Disabilities Act (ADA) was passed in 1990. Congress passed this law to protect the rights of people with disabilities, 
The law symbolizes a change from treating people as second-class citizens. The ADA states that businesses, like the cafeteria, are required to make reasonable accommodations for individuals with disabilities. Emailing a menu is a reasonable accommodation. I told the manager that if he would not send emails consistently, I would sue. To tell you the truth, I had no idea how I would do that. <laughs> I was 19. How would I afford a lawyer? I was nervous that lawyers and judges wouldn't understand. Besides, it's just a menu, right? Lewis and Clark did an excellent job of giving me my course materials, my textbooks, my exams in Braille. Students all across the country, blind students in other colleges, struggle to get basic access to books, even today. So who was I to complain? My mother grew up in Eritrea amidst a 30-year war with Ethiopia. When she was 18, she trekked for two weeks from Eritrea to Sudan, then from Sudan through a refugee organization, made it to America for a better life. So who was I to complain? I was worried that someone would think that access to a menu was too trivial, that it was a privilege and not a right. But at the same time, I was also excited with the possibility of making the college a better place, even if it was just one other blind student that came after me. I had a vision of helping other people. I had a vision of joining the civil rights movement, maybe even becoming a lawyer. I had a vision of eating that chocolate cake. <laughs> After teaching the cafeteria staff about the ADA, everything changed. They agreed to provide menus consistently, and they did. Learning about the ADA changed their attitude. They originally thought that providing access for students with disabilities was a favor, something they can do in their free time when they were in the right mood. Learning about the ADA changed the culture in the cafeteria. The ADA creates legal obligations to treat people as equals. Schools nowadays admit students with disabilities, and that's great. Access goes beyond the schoolhouse game. We need access to online learning tools, to math and science courses, to study abroad programs, and yes, even dessert menus. My experiences as a pioneer inspired me to become a lawyer. I now work in Berkeley at Disability Rights Advocates, a national nonprofit organization. One stereotype of lawyer is that they're just after your money. DRA does not charge clients. Civil rights need to be accessible. One tool used by lawyers, including a DRA, is the class action litigation. Class actions are when a group of people come together to sue someone who's doing something wrong. It's a way to help improve access to important things like education or employment and healthcare at a national level. A few years ago, several students at UC Berkeley came to DRA with concerns. Students with print reading disabilities need access to course materials in alternative formats, like Braille, large print, audio, digital. The university was taking so long to provide these materials that students were at risk of failing their courses. 
Through the help of lawyers at DRA, students were able to reach an agreement with the, with the university. The university now has new policies that are turning Berkeley into a model for other schools. Lawyers, first and foremost, educate their communities. I know that if people learn how to help, they will. So if you're a programmer, a web engineer, learn about the web accessibility guidelines. If you're an architect, learn about the ADA guidelines for new constructions. We can choose to make our communities accessible. It's in our power to provide access for everyone. Those individuals who've had to move forward as pioneers are particularly well positioned to help their communities, whether it's lawyers or as other advocates. My name is Havan Gurma, and I hope I've given you a new vision of lawyers. Thank you. Thanks to Saeed and Haben for their insights today on how to fight for ourselves and each other and center our wholeness whenever possible. And that about wraps up our episode of Adapt Revolution, your weekly antidote to hate, greed, and ableism where the D word is disability. Thanks for tuning in. I'm all that. You think I'm all that. That's why you all are this. Okay, thank you. What? What? Don't play. Thank you, baby. Thank you, all. Don't listen to him, please. Can we hear him? I don't know what you guys are talking about. Jan, I've been meaning to tell you that your hair is going to be so Don't do it. Don't do it, honey. Now, wait now. I'll play this tape when I'm ready to play the tape, okay? Ooh. Okay, I'm ready. Boo, what's that? Side A, boo. Side A. Pumpa, boo. Pumpa. Pumpa. Now she wants everybody to hear it. Pumpa. All right. You gotta come with me now. You know it is. Oh, yeah, okay. How's it start, baby? Like a moth to a flame burned by the fire. My love is blind, can't you see my desire? That's the way love goes.